I am Yahweh, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your seed, and your seed will also be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land, for I will not forsake you until I have done what I have promised you. Genesis 28, verses 13 through 15. And these are the last words that we hear God speak to Jacob as he's fleeing his homeland and his family from the wrath of his jilted brother Esau. He's been sent to his uncle Laban to obtain a wife from his, for, from his family, which he's done, marrying his youngest daughter. In fact, he obtained two wives, marrying both of his daughters, and then marrying both of their slaves. And he's had 11 sons and one daughter by these four women. And up until the last six years, he had been working for nothing other than the right to marry the daughters of Laban. Fourteen years of indentured servanthood for Rachel. The first seven years, he thought, he thought those were for Rachel, but those actually were for Leah. The next seven were for Rachel. And during this time, these 14 years of service, Jacob could obtain nothing for himself or his family. All that he did, all that was produced by his labor, went to Laban, his uncle. Very often when we read through sections of scripture such as this one, the sale of a young woman to a man who didn't love her and still seemingly does not. Fourteen years of indentured servanthood after being cheated. As we deal with things like this in the Bible and even in events in our own life, events that are hard to understand, the death of a loved one at an early age, the financial ruin of an honest man, the murder of children for no apparent reason, we can find ourselves asking, where is God in all of this? Where is God during this? Where's God? And when we're faced with chapters like the one before us today, with the life of a saint such as Jacob, we ask ourselves, where is God in all of this? Saints, we need accounts such as these in order to better understanding the God that we know as our Savior, the God that we know as our Father. And the reason for this is that we are exactly as the Bible tells us that we are. We are monsters of iniquity. iniquity. You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you formerly walked according to the curse of this world, according to the rule of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all also formerly conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. We were formerly these things formerly dead in our transgressions and sins, formerly a son of disobedience, formerly a child of wrath. We were these things, and we are now a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. 
but we are still embodied in this body of death. We still have a sin nature. We are no longer slaves to it because we have been redeemed. We have been set free. We have been made new. But as John, the Apostle John, warned us, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. 1 John 1, 8 through 10. And this is the same thing that the Apostle Paul lamented about in his letter to the church in Rome. And keep in mind, when you read that, he's not talking about himself prior to salvation, but afterwards. Beginning in verse 13, he says, Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin, in order that it might be shown to be sin by working out my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am fleshly, having been sold into bondage under sin. For what I am working out, I don't understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very things that I hate. But if I do the very thing that I don't want, I agree with the law that it's good. So now, no longer am I the one working it out, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the working out of it, the good, is, or working out of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice a very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, that I am no longer the one working it out, but sin which dwells in me. I find then that the principle that in me evil is present, in me who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in my members, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a captive to the law of sin which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I find myself <clears throat> with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. It was because of this truth that he could say in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he didn't say there that there is therefore now no sin for those in Christ Jesus. There is now no condemnation for the sin that we do. Christ has paid for that sin, all of it. He loves us to hell and back. God is love. And we are still sinners. And our hearts are idol factories, creating God in our image. And we have all been taught wrongly about what love is, what the love of God is. We, we, we think, when we think of love, we think of something out of a Jane Austen book. Something romantic, warm, affectionate. And scripturally, when we think of love, we think of 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8. We think that this defines love. 
Love is patient. Love is kind. It's not jealous. does not brag. is not puffed up. It doesn't act unbecomingly. does not seek its own. is not provoked. does not take into account a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. And we use these verses exclusively to define love. And we use them out of context. We fail to actually take these verses in the context in which they were given. Speaking of our actions within the church. For the church and even to the church. And completely disregard clear indicators from God of what love actually is. You see, there is, there can be no greater indicator of what love is other than God himself. The Father loves the Son. Jesus himself told us this in John 3, 35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. And that is love defined. That is love eternal. And that is the love that we should desire to have and to emulate. But what is that love like? What does it feel like? What does it look like? What does it produce? John 10, 17. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay my life down that I may take it up again. And there, there is the clearest definition of what love is. It's sacrificial obedience. There's a few more times that Jesus said the same thing. John 14, 31 but so that the world may know that I love the Father. I do exactly as the Father commanded me. And in that verse, he just has flipped the love between the Father and the Son. In that John 10 verse, he said that the Father loved him because he lays his life down. And here he says that by his actions, by his actions, you can know that he loves the Father. He obeys. He does exactly as he is commanded. And he's the son of God. He is God incarnate. He is the word. And he has no issue with being told what to do. And then following through and doing it. And he doesn't because he loves the father. Because the father loves him. And he explained love a few verses earlier in John 14. John 14, 20 and 21. On the day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. And then John 15, 9 through 11. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. And this is the same thing that we're told in 1 John 5, 2 and 3. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and do his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. You see, we humans, we think that we know better than God. 
We think that we understand what is best for us, better than God. That his word really cannot be right. It can't be good. It can't be the best thing for us. And one way that this is proven is the manner in which we train up our children. We prove this by the manner that we discipline our children. Spanking? That is wrong. That is bad. Children, they need affirmation. They they need to know that they really are good people. They need to have their sense of self-importance built up. We don't desire to view the children that God has given us as his, first and foremost, on loan to us. That we are given a privilege in mimicking him as we train up and discipline them. Instead, we want to be nice. We want to be easy. We want to be known as the fun parents. And our kids, oh, our kids... They need a long, happy, carefree childhood. Otherwise, they're going to grow up to be unhappy mass murderers. And yet, this is exactly what our society is churning out. Unhappy mass murderers who have had soft parents, fun parents, an easy and self-fulfilled childhood. And we think that humans were created for fun. That since children are seemingly happiest when they are having fun, that we should make sure that we elongate that fun time for as many years as we possibly can. And then we wonder why at the age of 30 and more now, they're still living at home. They won't get a job. They don't want to adult. We are unwilling to take a hard look in the mirror of God's word and see that all of this is our fault. In our sin, we did this. We think that work is bad. That it's a necessary evil. How often have you actually said those things? Had that come out of your mouth? It's just a necessary evil. Which is why having fun is better than work. We fail to acknowledge that work predates the fall. That man was created to work. That we are at our best. That we are fulfilled in and through work. That we, even we, the church, we have allowed our culture to dictate our obedience to the word of God. And in in doing so, Instead of training up soldiers for Christ, disciples that are willing to charge the gates of hell with a glass of cold water, we are producing the most medicated, the most socially awkward, most lacking in the knowledge of the holy generation that has ever been produced. We don't believe the truth is told to us in Proverbs 22:15 that folly is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline will remove it far from him. We don't believe that. We either do not read Proverbs 19:18, which says, Discipline your son while there is hope, and don't direct your soul to put him to death. We ignore that verse, that command. We, we don't understand Romans 8:28. For those that <clears throat> and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who is called according to his purpose. We think that that verse only applies to things that we approve of, not the things that we don't like. 
And for this reason, we don't understand the lives of Rachel, of Leah, and of Jacob. You see, we think that they deserved happiness. They deserve to have it their way. And we think that way because that's what we want for ourselves. We would rather live a happy, meaningless life rather than a hard, meaningful one. And then we create God in our image and say that if your life is wool, meaning anything that's hard, anything that is not pleasing to your flesh, you're outside of the will of God. You're going to know that you're in, in the will of God when your life is like silk, when it's soft and it's smooth and it's pleasing to your flesh. We seem to have forgotten or never known the God of the Bible, that God that is for us. And because he is for us, he will very often send very hard and harsh things into our life, even, even if you're not committing willful, blatant sin. We have either forgotten or have never known that God is for God and that he will reveal himself to whomever he chooses. He's going to use whomever he chooses, however he chooses. That he's, we've forgotten or never knew that he used Laban as his instrument to remove that old man of Jacob that was hindering him from knowing God in the manner that would best benefit him. And you're thinking, that's not the God that I know. God would never use a pagan. He would never reveal himself to the unsaved. God does not operate that way. Isaiah 45, verses 1 through 7. Thus says Yahweh to Cyrus, his anointed, whom I have taken hold of by his right hand, to subdue nations before him and, the lo and loose the loins of kings, to open the doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the rough places smooth. I will shatter the doors of the bronze and cut through their iron bars. I will give you the treasure of the darkness and hidden um, wealth of secret places so that you may know that it is I, Yahweh, the God of Israel, not the God of you, the God of Israel who calls you by your name for the sake of Jacob, my servant, and Israel, my chosen one. I have also called you by your name. I have given you a title and honor, though you have not known me. And did you hear who it was that God called Cyrus for? For his servant Jacob. And the amazing thing was, is that Isaiah 45 verse, that passage of scripture was penned 200 years before Cyrus was even born. And even more stunning than that is that that was penned while Israel and Judah were still in their own land, still sovereign nations, disobedient, sinning nations. They were still free in their sin and slavery to sin. They were still in willful disobedience to God. They have not yet been taken into captivity. That will happen 130 years in the future. And this is the God that we toy with, that we don't take seriously. This God he is confident in, in, in who he is and desires that we know who he is. 
which is why he goes on in, uh, in those Isaiah verses and tells us, I am Yahweh, and there is no other. Beside me there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that they may know from the rising uh, to the setting of the sun that there is no one beside me. I am Yahweh, and there is no other, the one forming light and creating darkness, producing peace, creating calamity. I am Yahweh who does all these things. For 14 years, Laban has had it his way. He has been the benefactor from the labor of Jacob, and God is the one who has done this. And now, during the last six years, God is blessing Jacob and preparing the way for him to return home. And he's using the things of this world as the catalyst of, for this move. Verses 1 and 2 from our chapter today. Then Jacob heard the word of Laban's son, saying, Jacob has taken away all that belonged to our father, and from, our belong, from what belonged to our father he has made all his wealth. And Jacob saw the face of Laban, and behold, it was not friendly toward him as formerly. And I'm not sure how his face must have looked at that moment, but whatever it was, it was easy for Jacob to tell, he ain't happy with me anymore, which must have made verse 3 very sweet to his ears. Then Yahweh said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your kin, and I will be with you. And he had to have been thinking at that moment, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, I'm free at last. He must have longed to hear those words for a long while. And now he's been given the command to leave. And even though he receives this command from God, and even though he's been given an assurance by God, I'm going to be with you, he's still fearful, which brings about verses 4 through 13. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah to his flock in the field, and he said to them, I see your father's face that is not friendly toward me, as, toward me as it was formerly, but the God of my father has also been with me. You also know that I have served your father with all my power. Yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. However, God did not allow him to harm me. If he spoke thus, the speckled shall be your wages, then all the flock will bore speckled. And if he spoke thus, the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus God has delivered your father's livestock and given them to me. Now it happened at the time when the flock were mating that I lifted up my eyes and I saw in a dream, and behold, the male goats which were mating were striped, speckled, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in a dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up now your eyes and see that all the male goats which are mating are striped, speckled, and mottled, for I have seen all that Laban has been doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar, where you made a vow to me. Now arise, leave this land, and return to the land of your kin. Jacob is fearful of Laban finding out that he's going to leave. So he calls his wives out to the field where he's got all their stuff waiting. And he tells them his plan. And from verses 14 through 16, we see that the harsh treatment of Jacob by Laban must have been also toward his daughters as well. As well. Then Rachel and Leah said to him, Do we still have any portion or inheritance in our father's house? Are we not counted by him as foreigners? For he has sold us and has entirely consumed our purchase price. Surely all the riches which God has delivered over to us from our father belongs to us and our children. 
Now then, do whatever God has said to you. Most assuredly, it's always reassuring to have others on the same page with you, to see things from your perspective. But we should never seek the approval from men when it comes to obedience to the word of God. God appearing to Jacob, speaking to him, reassuring him that he would be with him, that didn't seem to be enough. He needed the security and approval of people from his wives so that he could move forward, which then brings about verses 17 through 21. Then Jacob arose and put his children upon, and his wives upon camels, and he drove away all his livestock and all his possessions which he accumulated, his acquired livestock which he has accumulated in Padanamaran in order to go to the land of Canaan, to his father's house, to his father's Isaac. Now Laban had gone to shear his flock. And then Rachel stole the household idols that were her father's. And Jacob deceived Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he was fleeing. So he fled with all that he had. And he rose and crossed the river and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. That he had already had all his stock all his belongings ready to move as soon as he got permission from his wives, proves verse 20 was not hyperbole. What Rachel did was stealing, and it was sinful. And as we shall see, it could have condemned her to death. But what Jacob did was just as wrong, just as bad. Jacob purposely deceived Laban. Jacob was a coward. He was afraid of confrontation, and so he acted in fear. The 20 years that he had spent with Laban, being cheated, mistreated, humbled, hadn't changed him at his core. He had to flee from Isaac and Rebekah because of his deceit, and now he's fleeing from Laban for the same reason. God told him to leave, but God never told him, Deceive your uncle Laban any more than he told Jacob to deceive his father. And again, this is told to us to confront another of our false assumptions. We think, we desire to believe that the more time that we log in a pew, the longer that our butts sit in a chair or in a pew in a church, because of that, our old man of sin is just going to automatically go away. But this is not the truth. We read in Romans 8.29, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the first born among many brothers. He has predestined you, and you are sanctified if you are in Christ. But you do not become more conformed into his image into the image of the Son, by God alone. This is one of those instances in your life that God chooses to partner with you, and you growing more into the image of Christ. God does partner with us. He regenerates our hearts. But you, you are commanded to confess and believe. He, he makes you part of his family. But you are the one that has to go and join his family by joining his church. And you must be, I must be, just as John Owen so rightly said, mortifying the flesh. We need to be killing our sin or it will kill us. 
You see, God will discipline us. He will discipline you. But understand that there are those that are not trained by that discipline. There are those that are like that dog that continues to return to their vomit. They never seem to grow because they will not obey. They may obey in what seems to be hard for most people, but they won't obey in those things that are very needful in them. If you ever desire to see and understand within yourself what it is that the Lord is demanding that you obey in, the thing that is hard for you, you're going to know what that is because that's the thing that your flesh loves the most. Pornography, laziness, worldliness, carnality, selfishness. Whatever your flesh loves the most, that's the thing that you need to be killing or it will kill you. And this was the truth for Jacob as well. He was a deceiver and he was a coward. And when he fled to Laban, he was that man. And he was a deceiver and he's a coward when he leaves Laban. But never forget that all this time, these 20 years, he is the joy that was set before Christ. He is redeemed. He was redeemed. And he was already sanctified. And God kept his promises. So when Laban finds out that he's been deceived, that Jacob has fled, he goes after him. He had no reason or right to go after Jacob if Jacob hadn't have fled. But now that Jacob has acted deceitfully, shamefully, as far as Laban knew, he also was the one that took those things that were not his. He has a right now to go and take all that Jacob has, possibly even his own life. But God kept his promises, verses 22 through 30. Then it was told to Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, so he took his relatives with him and pursued with them a distance of seven days' journey. And he overtook him in the hill country of Gilead. And God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream of the night and said to him, Beware, lest you speak to Jacob either good or bad. So Laban caught up with Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban with his relatives camped in the hill country of Gilead. Then Laban said to Jacob, what have you done by deceiving me and carrying away my daughters like captives of the, of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and deceive me and not tell me so that I might have sent you away with gladness and with songs and with tambourines and with a lyre and not allow me to kiss my sons and my daughters? You have acted foolishly. It is in my hand, verse 29, to do evil against you. But the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, do you, do you recognize that Laban does not know that the God of his father is Jacob's God? The God of your father spoke to me last night saying, beware of speaking either good or evil to Jacob. So now you have indeed gone away because you long greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? And then finally Jacob finally tells the truth. Verse 31, Then Jacob answered and said to Laban, because I was afraid, because I said, lest you take your daughters from me by force. Saints, fear of man is a very subtle and cancerous sin, and it is sin, because in every instance, 
in every instance that you fear man, that you fear confrontation, in every instance and in every situation, the reason for fear of man is a lack of faith in God. Every time. Because when you believe God, when you stand on his word, you never have to worry about men and what they can do to you. Isn't this the command by our Lord and Savior in Luke 12, 5? He says, when I, uh, let me show you who to fear. Fear the one who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And the fear of man is not like faith. Faith is a gift from God. Nor is it because God has not given you enough faith not to fear. Fear of man is you. It's you every single time. You acting in your old man, in the disobedience of not believing that which you claim that you believe. And it's God revealing to you your reliance on yourself and not on him. If you have made a profession of faith that Jesus is Lord and that you are a redeemed sinner, the only way that you can say that is because God has given you the faith to believe. If you fear man, you do so because you're setting your eyes on the temporal, because you haven't spent enough time with the eternal. You have focused more of your attention on what is fleeting and passing away. You've made much too big a deal about these dirt clods around you than you have on the eternal, the majestic, the holy. And it was the fear of man. The fear of man was the catalyst for all the events in our chapter today. Jacob could have acted in faith, boldly telling Laban, God has commanded me to leave, and I'm leaving. And if he had done this, Laban wouldn't have a leg to stand on, and Rachel wouldn't have stolen the idols, nor deceived her father, which she's about to do, verses 32 through 35. Jacob says, the one in whom you find your gods shall not live. He just condemned Rachel right then. In the presence of our relatives, recognize what is yours among my belongings, and take it for yourself. But Jacob didn't know that Rachel had stolen them. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two maidservants, but he didn't find them. Then he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's tent. Now Rachel had taken the household idols and put them in the camel's saddle, and she sat on them. And Laban felt through all the tent, but he didn't find them. And she said to her, her father, let not, let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the manner of women is upon me. So he searched, but he didn't find his household items. And then, and then Jacob goes off. How foolish he's going to feel when he finds out that Rachel has, in fact, stolen the idols of her father. But that was for another day. Today, he gets angry. Verses 36 through 41. Then Jacob became angry and contented with Laban. And Jacob answered and said to Laban, What is my transgression? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? Well, why did he pursue you? How about because you deceived him and you fled like a coward? How about that, Jacob? Though you have felt through all my goods, what have you found of your household goods? Place it here before my relatives and your relatives that they may decide between the two of us. And here again, 
This is the grace of God in this man's life. Had it not been for God intervening, it wasn't chance that Laban did not find these gods. It wasn't because Rachel was so good at hiding things. This is God's intervention in this man's life. Had it not been for God intervening, Laban would have found those household gods, and then Jacob would have been in a pickle. Because he is the one who said that whoever has taken these things is going to die. And then he lets out all of his self-pity. Verse 38. These 20 years I've been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, nor have I eaten the rams of your flocks. That which was torn a beast, I didn't bring it to you. I bore the loss of it myself. You required it of my hand, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. Thus I was by day. The heat consumed me, and the frost by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These 20 years I have been in your house. I've served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock, and you changed my wages 10 times. Jacob had had enough. All those years of pent-up anger just welled up from within him, and he went off. But as the Word of God tells us, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God, James 1.20. What the anger of man does is it reveals just how much we have not relied on the Lord. It re- re- reveals our reliance on self, our affection of self. Jacob felt like, I've got a right here. And then Jacob finally tells the truth concerning God. He, leaves, he leads in all of this with how I've been wronged, how he had done right, the bad treatment that I had to endure. He led with that, but then he finally, finally gives the real reason as to why he has anything, why he was still alive. Verse 42 If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, the dread of Isaac had not been for me, surely now you would have sent me away empty. God has seen my affliction and the toil of my hands. So he rendered the decision last night. And then Laban answers back in his flesh as well. Verses 43 and 44. Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, The daughters are my daughters, and the children are my children, and the flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine. But what can I do to this day to the daughters of mine or to their children whom they've born? So now come, let us cut a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. He starts off all hard. These are mine. And then he does something completely surprising. He obeys God. He obeys the word that had been given him the night before by a God that he didn't know personally. And then Jacob took up a stone and raised it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his relatives, Gather stones. So they took stones and made a heap, and they ate there by a heap. And Laban called it Jagur Sedudah, but Jacob called it Gilead. And those names, they mean the same thing. Literally, what they mean is a witness pile. Laban calls it that in Aramaic. Jacob calls it that in Hebrew. They may have lived 20 years together. But here at the end, Jacob is intent on displaying the difference, the covenant difference between these two men. And Jacob would not cut covenant with this man. 
He wasn't interested in cutting covenant with him. Jacob knew something of the character of that man. He knew that he couldn't be trusted, that he would not keep the terms of a covenant. And he didn't want to bind himself to this man in a covenant either. So he does something completely different. He creates a stone pillar. That's something much different than cutting covenant that Laban suggested. He didn't want himself bound to this man. He wanted to cut his ties with this man, not cut covenant with him. And then Laban lays out the terms for this peace accord. Verses 48 through 53. Then Laban said, This heap is a witness between you and me this day. Therefore it was named Galid and Mizpah, for, the, for he said, May Yahweh watch between you and me when we are absent from one another. And if you afflict my daughters, or if you take wives beside my daughters, although no man is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. And Laban said to Jacob, Behold this heap, and behold this pillar which I have set between you and me. This heap is a witness, and the pillar is a witness, that I will not pass by this heap to you for harm, and you will not pass by this heap and this pillar to me for harm. The God of Abraham, and of God, the God of Nahor, and the God of their father judge between us. And taken on face value, those terms, they almost seem godly. He makes it seem as if he is the one who's protecting, he, protecting the sanctity of marriage that he's protecting his daughters from becoming rivals with other women. But he had been the one that actually had afflicted them, all of them. He was the one who once he saw Jacob back at that well so long ago, heard that he had been sent to take a wife from Laban. It was he who set out to use the fact that he didn't have a dowry price for his benefit. And when he found out that Jacob had eyes for Leah, and or I'm sorry, for, J for Rachel and not Leah, he knew that the bait and that trap had been set. And he set, and then he sprung that trap, which ended up costing Jacob 14 years of his life. Jacob must have figured that Jacob, I'm sorry, Laban must have figured that Jacob would have offered himself as a servant for Rachel. And he couldn't have known how many years of indentured service he was going to get from Jacob. But when he heard Jacob say seven, <laughs> he was very happy to accept that. It must have been much more time than he was going to ask for and to begin with. And he knew the moment that he entered that covenant with Jacob, the covenant contract of marriage for Rachel, which is what he did, he was going to get 14 years instead of seven. And he didn't care about his daughters. He traded them as if they were stock. He sold them for profit. And he made them rivals with each other. He's the one that did this. And because of the broken covenant of marriage that Laban had broken with him, Jacob was unwilling to enter into another covenant with Laban. But Jacob, he was willing to keep the terms as given by Laban. He had no intention of sticking around, of ever coming back to this place, and he most certainly did not need any more women in his life. Which brings us to the end of verses of these verses, 53 through 55. So Jacob swore by the dread of his father Isaac. Then Jacob offered a sacrifice on the mountain and called his relatives to eat a meal. And they ate the meal and spent the night on the mountain. And Laban arose early in the morning and kissed his sons and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned to his place. The night before Jacob or before Laban left. Jacob stood on the edge of the rest of his life. 
stood at a turning point in his life, and he swore by God to keep the terms of that contract with Laban. And in verse 53, we are told that he swore by the dread of Isaac, or um, in your Bible, maybe the fear of Isaac. And this is not a popular or even a common way to describe a relationship that a person has with God, not one that we would normally say. We hardly ever hear anyone ever speak of God in this way. We, in our Western evangelicalism, we have made God into our own image. So much so that when we speak of God, we will say things like this, God's my friend. He's my bodyguard. God's my homeboy. And if God is those things to you, I have to warn you that you are probably not worshiping the true and living God. And yes, Jesus does call us friends. Abraham was a friend of God. But this is how God sees us. This is from his perspective to us. Listen to how Jesus expects us to see him. John 15, 14. You are my friends if you do what I command you. He is master. We are slaves. Just because God sees us as his friend, has called us in love and in friendship, this doesn't mean that we should become familiar with him. And by familiar, I mean that we should treat him commonly, that we should ever think like or act like that we are equals with him. A dog is said to be a man's best friend. And you can say that your dog is your best friend, but a dog is not your equal. That dog does not attain to the same status as you, a human, as much worth as you. How much more so between God and us? And we would be wrong to assume that God had been so harsh in the life of Isaac that this was why he was known that way. We would be wrong to assume that every time that Isaac thought about God, he winced out of fear of getting smacked again. What Jacob had been shown and what he had been taught those 20 years of service to Laban was the same thing that Isaac was taught during the 20 years of barrenness of his wife, the years of hunger and thirst because of the famine, of the conflict with the locals over water. God had used the events of life, both natural and supernatural, in the lives of both of these men and both Isaac and Jacob to slough off more and more of the old man that hindered them from knowing the Lord that had redeemed them. And Jacob, during his 20 years of service to Laban, had learned, had finally learned why his dad loved the Lord like he did. And as Jacob set his face toward that promised land, he knew exactly where God was at that moment. He understood where God had been for the, through that last 20 years because he knew that God had been faithful, that he would never leave Jacob nor forsake him. He understood the love of God deeper because of the events of those 20 years. The love that his grandfather Abraham had experienced. The same love that his father had experienced. He knew this love. And saints, we are given chapters like this one. 
lives such as Jacob for the same reason that Jacob had been given the lives of his father and his grandfather. This is the reason that we're given Hebrews chapter 11. And this is the admonishment of Hebrews chapter 12, 1 through 3. Therefore, since we have such a great cloud of witness surrounding us, laying aside every weight and the sin which so easily entangles us, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary, fainting in heart. Saints, if you are going through a hard time in your life, a difficult time now, I pray that the Lord would use these events in your life, and even this chapter, supernaturally to you. Because the events of your life, those hard things, just like this chapter, they are a gift from God, from your loving Father to you. We all enjoy getting gifts. We love getting gifts that please our flesh. But the gifts from God, they're much better because they're always beneficial for our soul. Again, Hebrews 12, this time beginning in verse 5. Have you forgotten exhortation which addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he flogs every son whom he receives. It's for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there from whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. And let me stop there for a second. If you have never talked to an orphan, to a, a, a child that doesn't have a family, if you've never had that experience of talking to someone like that and understanding how much they long to be called son, you have no idea of how this is so impacting to actually hear us called son. We don't have that right. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our benefit, so that we may share in his holiness. And all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. But to those who have been trained by it, Afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And once again, I have to ask you the question that I told you I was going to ask you every week. How much of a dumpster fire does your life have to become until you finally submit and obey? Because God will continue. He will take everything away from you that he has to. He will break your legs. He will take your ability to think. He will cast you out for you to obey. He will do that. And unlike what you've been told, he will take you to the end of yourself. He will give you more than you can handle. He will. 
And he does that because he loves you that much. But there is a difference between those that are getting disciplined, those that actually learn, and those that always seem like they are never passing the test. The, dis- the difference is, is that some refuse to obey, to actually learn. Those that do are the ones that are trained by the disciplined. Those that don't, they are the one whose lives just seem like it's always a dumpster fire. They may know the Lord, and their life proves that they love the Lord because he keeps on disciplining them. But those others, those ones that are trained, they embrace that test. And more often than not, as they look back on that test, no matter how hard or painful it was, no matter what it cost them, they look back on that test, that time, as a sweet time of fellowship, simply because it was then, it was there, that they finally saw the Lord standing right where he had been all along. Just like Jacob, here, in the center of their life, as they rest safe in the arms of God. The same God that's responsible for all those tests. Saints, I admonish you Submit. Consider the fact that you are called sons and daughters. Think about what a great privilege that is and know that whatever the Lord is is telling you to submit, to give up, he's not taking from you. He wants to give to you. And at the same time, Lord, or same time, saints, know this about the Lord, that even if you are in submission, so often it is the saints that he desires to draw close and closer and closer to him, that he just pours out hard things in their life. But those are the saints that know the Lord. Those are the saints that at the end of their life, you look at and you're like, I don't know the God that you talk about the way that you do. So understand that if he is pouring out these hard things in your life, he's doing it for your good. And he's doing it for the glory of God, that he would be glorified in his church. 